He's known as the drummer for many groundbreaking rock bands in the late 60s and early 70s like Vanilla Fudge, Cactus, as well as one of the first supergroups with Jeff Beck, Beck, Bogert, and A Piece. In 1976, he joined Rod Stewart's band, touring, recording, and writing two of Stewart's biggest hits, Do You Think I'm Sexy and Young Turks. In the early 80s, he toured with Ozzy Osbourne and Ted Nugent. In mid-80s, he formed King Cobra for two Capitol albums, in the late 80s, he formed Blue Murder with White Snake's John Sykes and the firm's Tony Franklin. In the early 90s, he pounded away soul style for the Edgar Winter Group. And as an educator, Carmine was the first to legitimize rock drumming with his landmark book, The Realistic Rock Drum Method, selling over 400,000 copies. His latest project is a re-release of his Guitar Zeus project, a compilation album featuring a who's who list of the best and world-renowned guitarists on the planet, including Brian May, Slash, Neil Schoen, Ingve Malmsteen, Paul Gilbert, Richie Sambora, Dweezil Zappa, Vivian Campbell, Steve Morse, Doug Pinnock, and many others. If you want to support what we do here along the right side of the homepage on the Working Drummer website, you can find buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and if you want to be featured on Instagram, post pictures and videos of your gigs using the hashtag Working Drummer. We love seeing what you are all up to. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube now as well. If YouTube is your choice for streaming audio, every couple weeks we will be putting out a group of 10 episodes for you to visit for the first time or for revisiting the Working Drummer Podcast archives. Please subscribe to this YouTube channel, and leaving a rating and review on any or all of these platforms is very helpful for us. Before we get started, let's do our bi-monthly check-in on Arjuna Contreras as he makes the move from Texas to Nashville. Hey, Matt. How's it going, man? Hey, man. Down to the wire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pulling like a, one of those old-fashioned, like, O.J. Simpson's, like, Hertz car <laughs> commercials right now. Nice. Running. Actually, I'm not running that fast. <laughs> it's only it's only two, uh, two, two gates, two or three gates down, but, but yeah, thanks for... Hitting a moving target today. <laughs> yeah, hey, hey man, no worries. Hey, this is part of it, right? So, where are you going? Uh, well, I, you know, I was in Dallas for a couple of days after we finished the tour on Saturday night, and uh, I'm on my way out to California to do those four shows with Junior Brown. Oh, right. So, yeah. So the first show is tomorrow, tomorrow night in like Agora Hills. Okay. Um, Kind of out there by Malibu area, but it's all Southern California stuff. <clears throat> and uh, spent the last couple of days like sleeping and refreshing my memory on all his material and figuring out how I was going to fly, like my you know kind of like my rig for <laughs> for his gig. Okay, you know which is you know it's like a snare drum cymbal. Uh, I'm, I'm actually using like a beginning percussion kit bag to put my hardware in. Okay. <laughs> you know, because all I needed was like the, uh, you know, cymbal stand, snare stand, and like thrown bottom. I have a thrown top like in my suitcase with a cymbal. You're flying everything. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I, I probably could have like rented stuff, but I didn't want to. Yeah. They didn't want to cut into like I, they, there was no offer made and on this situation for him for them to cover like backline. Yeah. So you know, and I and luckily it's the flights are Southwest, so you know you get like two bags for free and plus a carry on. So I got like a snare drum case and you know uh, my suitcase and my beginner percussion bag. <laughs> 
in a in a backpack and I'm good to go. No nice. extra charges. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> but, uh, so no kick drum, just snare? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just snare and like, you know, I have some uh some brushes and like uh kind of like big first version of like hot rods and some sticks. There's there there are a few tunes that I get to bust out the sticks for, but primarily it's like brushes and hot rods on the whole gig. Okay. How long are you filling in? Four days. Oh, great. At this time, like this, this is just a little four day run. We'll, we'll be finished on Sunday night. Uh, Monday morning, I'm actually flying back to Nashville. Oh, great. I'm flying up at, at Loud Jams on Monday night. So. Right, right, right. Well, we're, we're, I mean, just so people know, they don't know what, what, what's going on here, but you're in between flights. You're, you know, we're trying to get caught up with where oh, you're yeah, at. And so, no, that's <laughs> yeah, fine. I, I'm, in, I'm in a Las Vegas airport right now, and I'm oh, trying, it, I yeah. just walked past a bunch of slots and resisted the temptation to, uh, to lose some money. <laughs> yeah, and if you see a guy uh, that looks like Carrot Top, don't give him any money. That's all I'm telling you right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Doesn't need it. <laughs> And you said you were doing some resting and all that stuff. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling a lot better than I did on Monday. <laughs> on you know, we we finished the tour on Saturday, House of Blues, and I my my uh, energy and excitement was still. Wait one second. Yeah. Okay, they're just getting ready to book. Yeah, I th- I thought for a second that maybe I had missed the boarding oh. <laughs> <laughs> because there was no one there was no one there was no one in line yet but I and then he got on the mic and I was waiting to have him say okay well that's the last call but no we were actually just starting sinking but down. yeah no I um you know I've I've rested a lot on Sunday Monday it really hit me though like I was really exhausted on Monday for some reason um slept a lot of the day spent some of the day starting to listen to Junior's stuff and that's pretty much all I did yesterday, Tuesday. Yeah. I listened to a ton of Junior Brown music and kind of just refreshed my memory and took care of some stuff that I need to take care of, like uh, business-wise and whatnot, and started did laundry and started packing yep. uh, to, to come off of this. <laughs> yeah, just got to um, get it together and yeah, turn well, around. I, yeah, yeah, it was a quick turnaround for sure. You know, all my the rest of the guys in the in Reverend Horton Heat's operation are all still kind of like laying low because we were gone, man, forty days and forty nights, oh literally. <laughs> it was th- thirty-four shows, but over the course of forty days and forty nights, wow. like we were walking around in the desert that whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, it was the longest tour that I've done actually in my life. You know, so now by like know. a week or so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, th- I'm glad we had a chance to just at least check in, um, and we'll yeah. we'll 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 catch back up in a couple weeks to kind of see how the tour went. Yeah, thanks, man. And when I catch back up with you in a couple weeks, I think we'll be back in Nashville at that point. So oh, good. Looking good. forward to spending some quality time out there. Okay. Well, listen, this is good, man. This is great. It's great to hear your voice, and we'll cut you loose so you can get a good seat. And um, and just hopefully get some sleep tonight. All right, man. I appreciate it, Matt. Talk to you soon, brother. Right. Thanks, RJ. See you, man. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye-bye now. So here you go. Here's my conversation with Carmine Apice. Enjoy. I saw on Instagram last night, I was just getting ready to shut everything down, and, and uh, I look on there and I see a picture of you with Daniel Glass. And I said, well, that's serendipitous right there. Uh, you with Daniel uh, ran into him. I don't know when that was, but. Daniel Glass. Uh, oh, oh, that was out in the street, in the, you know, in the lobby, right? Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah, he's a, he's a drummer, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was walking the street and he said, Carl, and, 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 and we started talking and stuff. And, and uh, he knew the building that we lived in. You know, and uh, which is a historical building, and you know, Lady Gaga grew up in this building, and uh, her parents still live here. And you now, Rock Around the Clock was recorded right here, and, and where our living room is, and our uh, the room I'm sitting in is they have 25 foot ceilings. Are you it used serious? To be part, you know, it used to be part of the studio that 
Decca Records had in this building in the 50s. They recorded Rock Around the Clock. That's, so, that's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty, a pretty wild piece of rock history, you know? Uh, you know, Daniel as an, as an educator as well. Um, and he had, I think he still has a podcast, but there was a point in which that we were going to be under an umbrella of podcasts. It was going to be the working drummer podcast and Daniel glasses and his first episode, I believe was all about rock around the clock. Oh yeah. Well, that's why he was flipping out about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so insightful. It was so so great to find out more information about that. And I had a chance to meet the drummer that was on that track <clears throat> later. Um, oh, really? Yeah, wow, about 10 years ago when he was doing some work <clears throat> wow. in Florida. And, but it didn't, uh, it didn't resonate at the time the way it should have. But, um, yeah, Daniel's good. Right, at, right. Daniel's good at, at peeling back some layers of important history, especially for... For us drummers. Yeah, I'm going to pull up. Uh, I'm on Instagram now. I'm going to pull Daniel's name up. Yeah. Let's see what the picture looks like. <laughs> it's good, man. It's good. So it makes it makes me realize that, you know, the, the people always joke, you know, hey, man, when you become famous, don't forget about me, you know, famous. I'm like, okay, so how many famous drummers would you recognize walking down the street? And uh, yeah, yeah. And and I have to say, Carmine, yeah, you got to be one just, of them. Yeah, well, I, I I get I do get recognized quite a bit, especially in the New York area, California. You know, in the biggest city, Chicago. Yeah, those kind of places. But it's been pretty much everywhere. Yeah. I mean, come on, I had fifty-one years to see my face. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you were in Nashville, you would as well, for yeah. sure. Oh, well, I have I have been in Nashville. And I've been recognized down there as well yeah yeah you You can't throw a rock without hitting a musician around here yeah yeah i know um (laughs) that's a funny way to put it (laughs) (laughs) it's it's almost true uh and we're all being rained on i think it's 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 we're like the new seattle i think um well man i (laughs) i want to i want to start off i want to get right into it so we don't so people know about guitar zeus and what's happening with this re-release and the bonus tracks and all that things. Can you tell us about what this project is? Well, basically it started in 1995 when I was, it was earlier than that, 1992 when I was putting the band together with Jeff Watson, Joe Lynn Turner, and Bob Daisley in San Francisco area. And uh, Jeff Watson had just came out of Night Ranger and got himself a record deal immediately. And I had a record out 10 years before that and I was trying to get another solo album out. And, you know, and it was a, it was a grunge era, you know? So, right. um, so it was not easy to get record deals, you know, for guys like us, we were called the dinosaurs, you know? And, and I said, oh, maybe I need to do a guitar record, you know, to do another solo record. I'll get a bunch of my guitar friends to play on a record, a solo record. I'll call it Guitar Gods. And I said, no, I'll call it Guitar Zeus. Because <laughs> we were screwing with the name Zeus for the band that became Mother's Army. You know, I said, Guitar Zeus, that's a funny name. It was just a goof, you know. Right. Then when I went to bed that night, I thought about it. I said, yeah, that's a good idea. Because marketing-wise, you could, I could, you know, do drum, drum magazines, guitar magazines, rock magazines throughout the world, you know. So it took me two years to find a manager that can put the deals together. And in the two years, I ran into guys like Brian May and Ted Nugent and guys from King's X, you know, and I asked them if they would all, you know, if they all would play on a record like that. And they said, yeah. So once we actually got the record deal, Warren got the record deal out of Japan. There are two of them, actually. And uh, one is 95, one is 97. So I ended up doing two complete records with this concept that did really well. All around the world, I probably sold with the two records and the Guitars Use Japan, Guitars Use Korea, probably sold about 150, 160,000 records. Wow. You know, which was reasonable, you know? Yeah, for sure. But I never really released it here. And then in 2005, I had a record deal with a a Swedish company that was going to put it out. All they did was put it up on the, uh, on the, um, 
electronic uh, like platforms, you know, and uh, and then they went out of business, hmm. you know. So they ended up leaving it on iTunes, leaving it on on you know like I just found out it was on Pandora, you know. And I don't know who who they're paying for, but they're certainly not paying me, no. you know. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, and that's all they did. Then I tried again in 2009 or 10 with another label, Fuel Records, and they just put it out as a double record, a double CD, mm-hmm. you know. So then um, this guy I'm working with, with Primary Wave, Robert DePole, he worked with me with my brother, and I told him about the record, and he said, oh, man, we should get that out, and we should, you should hold the digital rights because everything is going digital. Nothing is going to be... You know, sold even iTunes is not going to be doing downloads anymore in a couple of months, you know. So you need to get the digital, right? So because I was just going to make another sort of catalog deal so some people can buy it, whoever wants to buy it. Yeah. You know, and he said, you know, everybody on that record is big now again. You know, like Brian May, when I, when I recorded Brian May, he wasn't in Queen. Neil Sean wasn't in Journey. Zach Wilde was just uh, Zach, uh, Ozzy's sideman. Dweezil Zappa was just Frank's son, you know. Uh, Steve Bosch just joined Deep Purple. You know, so it was just like, you know, nobody was big like they are now, you know. So, 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 so Brian May was known from Queen, but at the time when you first recorded, is that what you were saying, like a 95, 97? Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, because Freddie had died, there was yeah. no more Queen at the time. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and we were friends, and, and he did, but now, you know, look at Brian May's career, it's exploding again, and he's, 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 he says, I'm blessed, he said, you know, he told me, I'm blessed, he says, I'm having a whole huge second career, I can't believe it, you know? <laughs> You know, so so Robert said we should get it out again, and and you know, you should keep the digital rights and could sell some of it, you know, physical. So I, I have a small label that I've been releasing stuff on, and uh, so I said, all right, I'll release it on my label, digitally. I mean, uh, physically and with the vinyl and the CD, and then we'll release it on on my label, digitally also. And this time, you know, I'll hire people to. Get some radio airplay and yeah. and you know do what Ann's doing you know and right. and keep promoting it and Robert's now going to start doing buy ads on the internet you know which that's what he does they market on the internet yeah and uh, you know we're getting it going now at least people are hearing about it and knowing about it you know so it's not like uh, you know guitar suits what's that you know there's still a lot of people haven't. I haven't heard about it. I mean, you need to get on on television, really, to, to get everybody to hear about it these days, you know? Yeah. So, and, and you know, even I'm talking about maybe doing it on, on television, but Robert says, I don't think you're going to make your money back on the ads that you mm-hmm. have to buy, Yeah. you know, to sell the physical product because most people are not buying physical product anymore, you know? I mean, including my, including myself. I mean, you know, I hear it, if I like a song or something, I get it on, on the download, and now that's going to be gone. So I guess I'm going to have to join Spotify, one of those things. I, I haven't joined it yet because it's it's ripping the musicians off so badly, you know. Uh, you don't make any money on those downloads. It's ridiculous. Yeah, we're, streams. we're hoping for some changes with that happening soon. Um, they're definitely yeah, going through some growth period. The only good thing about the business now, it, you know, you can work a record for a long time. Yeah. Because it used to be, you know, you get on the radio, if it's not happening in a couple of months, you're done. Okay. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's a good point. Uh, That's a good point. You know, but now you can keep working it, working it, working it, you know? And if you have a touring band, you can work and go on tour. But with this kind of thing, it's very difficult to go on tour with this kind of thing, you know? I see. So, right, with this many people. And you have, and speaking of CD and vinyl, you have these available for, there's about 10 tracks yeah. I see you have, like, available for vinyl. Well, well there's, 12, there's 12 on the, on the, on the, video, on the uh, CD, mm-hmm. and there's going to be eight on the vinyl. Gotcha. You know? and, then, and then if it does okay, you know, maybe we'll release a, a whole box set vinyl box set or something you know nice nice can you tell us a little bit about 
how it came together, some of the production, some of the experiences there? Well, the, the basic, I had a plan that once I got the deal, that I was going to do Brian May, Ted Nugent, and the guys from King's X first. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Brian May influenced a lot of, you know, legions of guitar players, so did Ted Nugent. And and the King's X guys in the, in the 90s when the grunge was going on, they were still happening because they were sort of almost grungy, you know. But they were very well respected by all the musicians. And, yeah, and so, continue to be. Right. So I figured... Once I get all these guys on there, they're going to be the drawing cards for other guys, you know? Yeah. And that's what ended up happening, you know? People heard, oh, Ted Nugent and Brian May's on there. Yeah, I'd like to do it. Right. And then Ingve heard about it through Kelly Keeling, my singer, who was doing something with Ingve as well. Ingve said, I'd like to do one, you know? They said, but I want to be on the track with Doug Pinnock. (laughs) So I said, okay. So I went down and got... I got uh, Doug on it, and I got and I got uh, Ingve on it. In return, I played on an Ingve track, you know. And then Ted Nugent, I went to get Ted as well. And I had to send uh, the slave tape to England for Brian May to do it. But okay. you know, before that, I sent I believe I sent him a cassette, you know. Wow. And uh, and in those days, you had to send it by FedEx. Right. Right. You know, yeah. you know in 1995, there was no. There's no emails like we know now, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I sent him, uh, I believe I sent him by by, te- by uh, FedEx, like a cassette of three songs. I made him pick out the song he wanted to do. So he picked out, you know, nobody knew. Mm-hmm. And and when the album finally came out, you know, Brian called me and said, uh, I got a big problem with this album. I said, oh, no, you know, <laughs> now what? You know, he said, well, I, I played it for all my staff. Everybody loves it so much. I need more copies. <laughs> I said, oh, no problem. That's, yeah, that's not a problem. Nice. Yeah. I said, no problem at all. So I sent him more copies and he's been a good supporter of it. He, 2005, he did an interview with a friend of mine, uh, the radio station in Hawaii when he was there, you know, and uh, I got that on uh, on on digital too so eventually we'll probably use some of that to help promote the record okay. you know well, no, nobody knew is a great track it's one of my favorites it's a great track sure. it's yeah. a great track really i mean great. it's hard for me to get a favorite track mm-hmm. you know because it you know they're all really good and they all have the ear candy like like the song uh stash i really like the song stash even though stevie solace isn't a used name of a guitar player but they did play with rod stewart for many years Okay. You know, but he was a great guitar player. And I really love that track because it's so uh, progressive and technical, you uh-huh. know, and, and different, you know, and it's, and we got experimented that the bass sound is experimental. The vocal sound was experimental, you know, same thing with the uh, code 19 track with Zach wild. Gotcha. You know, we got some crazy, you know, some ear candy all over this record, you know, <laughs> you know, and, but I, I can't, you know, every every song has its own thing for me, you know, from the first song onward, you know. My, i say the least favorite tracks is probably Guitars, this, uh, the GZ Blues. That's probably the least favorite track. Okay. There's was, there was this, you know, just a blues with a snare drum and uh, Steven Seagal and Seymour Duncan, you know. Okay. It's a nice track for what it is, but, you know. I like all the progressive stuff and right. and the Beatlesh and the Beatlesh sounding stuff. Yeah, you know. Well, let me so, ask you: Did you guys re- record the tracks and then have the guest come in, the the, the guitar player yes. that was featured? Okay. Yes. Well, it was either they came in or we sent it to them. Sure. I could tell you exactly who we came came in. Uh, or I, it'd be easy to tell you who we sent it to, uh, or went to. So I got Ingve, I got Ted. I flew there. I got the guys at King's X in Houston. And then I sent the tape to Brian. Yeah. I sent the tape to Steve Moss. And we sent the ADAT tape to Paul Gilbert because that's what he had in his house. He had an ADAT little studio. Yeah. And then pretty much the rest of the people were done in California in L.A. They okay. came to the studio that we recorded at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Slash came, we put on some candles and incense <laughs> because, you know, like Guns N' Roses was sort of like a 60s kind of, 
band, I thought, you know. What, but Welcome to the Jungle reminded me of a Yardbirds song, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, so we did that for him. And, you know, when Mick Mars came, his roadie brought in his, his full amp setup. Same thing with Slash. They brought in his full amp setup, you know. Elliot Easton played whatever amps we had there, which we did have some marshals there. You know, Bob Daisley came in town. He played, you know, Tony Franklin's bass amp, you know. So that's pretty much how we did it. And the second album was pretty much done the same way. You know, a lot of guys were in town and we did a lot of their, uh, a lot of the recordings in, in LA. Actually, most of the stuff was done in LA. Gotcha. And for anybody that's looking for a hard copy of this stuff, where can they go? They go to your website, right? They can go to my website and go to Amazon. And it's the album with the blue cover. Right. Not, not, not Conquering Heroes or not the Carmine Peace Project. It's right. just called Guitar Zeus. Yeah. That has the most tracks and it has the new tracks. Because on, on the release we did, I found a song called Mother Space. That was never, ever uh, released. It was never finished. I found it on 24 tracks, so we bounced it to digital. And then I asked Bumblefoot if he'd play on it, and he said yes. And I sent it to Bumblefoot, and he played on it. And then we mixed it. But there were some more guitars that needed to be done that my uh, mixing guy, Stevie D from New Jersey, he mixes a lot of all, mostly all my stuff now. And he is a great guitar player. In fact, we took him out on the road with me and my brother Vinny, and he did great. So I asked him if he could give me a little more heaviness out of the riff. And I, at the end of the song, I needed some guitar fills in between, you know, like vocals and stuff. So he did it, but we placed them on the right and on the left of the mix. And then when Bumblefoot came in, he came in in the center. Okay. Know? Okay. So so then we mixed that. And there's another track called uh, Nothing with John Norum. I thought John played fantastic on it. We never released that in Europe or uh, anywhere. I think we might have released it as a single little track in Japan, but that's it. And then uh, when I did Guitars in Japan, it was only released in Japan. And there's a track called Angels, which is a great song, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and this guy, Cha, who's considered the Jeff Beck of Japan, I had him play on it. And then there was another track called uh, Couldn't Be Better that was released in Japan as well. Mm-hmm. The only place else you could hear this is on a soundtrack to a movie called Dish Dogs. It was never really a soundtrack. Just You'd hear it on the movie. You'd hear you know, 15 seconds of it, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but I liked the track a lot. And I said, you know, I think we should release these songs. And then the Pat Travers Carmine a piece version of Do You Think I'm Sexy, where the only place you could have got it was on like Pandora, you know. So so these songs are all on the the digital versions now. Okay. Which which were never really released here. Okay. Well, it was it was great to dig into them and and you were saying this is on your label that's going out. Yeah, it's Rocker Records okay. on the physical. And it's Carmine Peace Enterprises or Entertainment nice. on uh, on the digital, but it all it all goes on the Carmine Pieces guitars. Are there other releases on the label? People you want to send people? Well, there is. Yeah, there's Travis the Peace. Me and Pat Travis live in Europe. Mm-hmm. There's Bogart the Peace and Friends. Me and Tim Bogart uh, did a record together. There's uh, a Cactus live in Japan. DVD, this Cactus Live in Japan CD. There's uh, uh, a singer from uh, Drum Wars, Jim Crane. His album's on the label. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know a new young guitar player named, uh, oh God, what is his name? I just went blank on his name. You <laughs> wouldn't like that. Uh, but anyway, so there's like 10 releases on there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, there's another band called Chains Over Razors that I produced. You know, they're like a Metallica meets Police kind of band, but they're a trio. But they're two brothers playing drums and guitar, and and a singer. Okay. So it's sort of like White Stripes on Ten. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com. 
the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. When computers first came out, and I Googled myself, and it would come out like 500,000 things. Yeah. I said, wow, 500,000 things about me on, on the internet? Holy mackerel. You know? Anything that you, you didn't know, you were like, oh, or br- brought back memories that maybe you forgot? Yeah. I mean, I'm doing, uh, I'm starting to get into a different area of my my career, like, uh, you know, motivational speaking. Right. And uh, my agent is putting together like a promo video of it, you know. And so I, I did my first one last, two weeks ago in California to, at a rotary club, you know. But um, so he showed me the video yesterday and there was a shot of me. I don't know where it was, but I'm wearing this, this turquoise shirt. I'm standing up on my drums, and I just didn't have a clue where it was, you know? <laughs> and I, I said, where'd you get that? He goes, I don't know. I found it on the internet. I said, wow. I said, that's really wild, because I don't even know where that is or what it was or, where, or what that shirt I was wearing, you know? <laughs> Who picked that shirt out? What, yeah. what, where I mean, I liked it. I liked, I liked it. it, but but it, it was you know, but it was in this uh, you know promo video, and, you know, and today every all kinds of videos have to be cut fast to keep people's attention. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. So I saw it, and I, I you know, it, 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 he didn't have it on you know enough time for me to really look at it and see what the hell it was. You know, I looked at it a bunch of times, and every time I looked at it, I saw something different in it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, but I couldn't tell where it was. You know, that's cra- that's crazy. There's so many excuses that we have for not remembering stuff, but yeah, right. Time's a big amazing. One. Uh, yeah. It, well, it, speaking of time, uh, I want to ask you some questions about your life leading up to Vanilla Fudge. There's so okay. much great information online. And have you read my book? I have not read your book. Uh, you got to get the book. The book has the whole deal in there. Stick it. My life of sex, drums, and rock and roll came out in 2016. Um, no, I have not read it. I apologize. Um, it still seems to be selling, and uh, and you know, like uh, it has the whole the whole story lead up to it. Basically, I mean, put it in a nutshell. You know, music really could have saved my life because a lot of my friends that I grew up with either ended up in jail or dead. Or in in jail for life or murder and stuff like that, you know. Because it was, I grew up in Brooklyn. You know, there, there was all you had to survive in there. You know, you had to be, be you had to be in a gang to survive. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. So that was my life. And I, when I read Ace Frehley's book and Peter Chris's book, he, they all uh, Bronx and Brooklyn too. They had the same same thing. You know. I was very surprised when I read those guys' books. I said, oh, my God, it's like reading my my life yeah. in Brooklyn. Yeah. You know? I think there's all different so, ways that music saves people in one way or another. It, it, yeah. In extreme cases, like you're talking about, um, I think there's, there's all these other ways and people are feeling socially, you know, all the way from there to... Something like being socially awkward and then finding her voice or, you know, getting yeah, yeah. getting through school with a purpose or dealing with relationships and having something to to feel connected yeah. to. And, you know, I, yeah, for me, I just loved I just loved the playing of, of the drums. And yeah. then when I had a drum set on a closed porch in my our house in Brooklyn. I noticed when I played, all these little girls my age would be outside like, <laughs> dancing around. And I looked at it, I said, wow, that's pretty cool. And th- then I discovered Gene Cooper, and I discovered the Gene Cooper story, where was, that, was, that was what his story was about. He was, he was such a big idol, and he had women running after him all the time. And I said, wow, I want to do that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's true. Well, uh, one of the questions I had related to your history is, is – I guess what was paying your dues for you? Well, just playing gigs all through my teens. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I played gigs all through my teens. Uh, I played everything from jazz gigs. 
I play with guys older than me too sometimes. Jazz gigs, uh, rock gigs, uh, what they used to call society gigs, which were like weddings, yeah. bar mitzvahs, sweet 16 parties, which those gigs you'd play all kinds of music like Latin music and society music like Ladies of Tramp and stuff like that. And, you know, then rock dancers would be just playing like songs of the day, you know, like in the, back in the day, Twist and Shout and At the Hop. You know, yeah, rock around the clock, those kind of things, you know, and uh, you know, so a little bit of everything was was what I played all the time, and which really developed my style. And then, uh, you know, I was 19, I joined this group called the Pigeons. Pigeons ended up being the Vanilla Fudge, and I had to change my style for that because everything was louder and there were no PA systems, so I had to hit harder. And I got bigger drums to make them louder. And I didn't know I was creating a whole new drum style. Day, you know? I, th I think that's one of the things that a lot of people go to when they think of you. As they think of this person that's creating a style of music. Uh, we talk, yeah, we talk about influences. We talk about, uh, and we're, we're into decades of rock drumming now in 2019. Yeah, yeah. And... Yeah. Um, our contemporaries are those that were influenced by those that were influenced by yeah, rock before. drummers. But yeah. I, I always go to the rock drummers in the sixties and, and fifties. And well, I mean, if, for me, it started, you know, the influential rock drummer started in the sixties. I mean, there was a couple of little guys, guys that influenced a bit mm -hmm. like uh, Sandy Nelson influenced me a bit. You know, wanted me to be a to do a drum single, which I never had. You know, and there was another one, Cozy Cole. Yeah. There was always Wipeout. These were drum singles. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. but the real influences I think started with the like 1967 when we came out. You know, before me there was Dino Danelli, who was a big influence on me mm -hmm. and a lot of other guys. You know, but then they they went so pop that Dino sort of fell out of the picture, you know? But there was like me and Dino, and then there was Mitch Mitchell, Ginger Baker, and Keith Moon. Yeah, Those are the guys that influenced the whole legion of drummers back in the day. And then, as I said, the Rascals got more commercial, and, and, and Dino's drumming was less influential in those days, you know, mm -hmm. where we all, the rest of us, kept going and building this underground, progressive kind of music that was not famous yet, you know? And, uh, but I was the only one who was the pounder. You know, I, I mixed technique with, with volume and power, you know? And it's funny because I, when I got an award from Sabian Cymbals two years ago, they said the world's greatest rock drummer. And I said, wait a minute, you know, what about Ringo? You know? They said, yeah, Ringo's more of a pop drummer. You're, you created what, what they call heavy rock drumming. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what everybody's doing today. They're not doing Ringo. Mm. They're all, if you look at guys' setups, they had the double bass drum with the gong, with the Chinese cymbals, mm -hmm. and playing hard and heavy and twirling sticks. That was me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. They said, they said, that was you, and that's what you created, and that's why you're getting this award. I said, oh, okay. And that was really the first time I ever thought about the fact that I created this stuff. Even I used to see like Spinal Tap. I said, oh, look at my influence in Spinal Tap. <laughs> Listen to Bohemian Rhapsody. The end yeah. thing, the last thing you hear is a gong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, but, you know, it didn't really dawn on me until they said that. I know I influenced Bonzo, you know, mm -hmm. and Ian Pace, but, you know, that was just two guys. It wasn't like most guys. And then as time went on, I found out I influenced, you know, other guys like Tommy Lee and Nico McBrain and Joey Kramer and this one and that one, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, until I started hearing that kind of stuff, I said, no. Yeah. And then I got that award and I go, yep, yeah, I guess, I guess I did create something. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, let me ask you, like at the time when you were, when you were kind of when you guys were working on this music, when you're 
in pre-production before recording the Vanilla Fudge records, were you yeah. th- were you thinking about something beyond just hitting harder? But I mean, was there an intention? No, of- no. Mm-hmm. no, We we were always, Vanilla Fudge was always, you know, technical. We you know we had time signatures in our music, you know, but we listened a lot to Revolver. That was our go-to album, you know, and okay. uh, that's why we did it on the Rigby with the Ticket to Ride. Yeah. You know, and we did it our way, but the, every way, you know, beginning of L.A. Rigby's in, in six, eight, six, four, uh, three, four. And it's, a, you know, it's this drumming thing that was fast singles in six, four, you know, mm-hmm. with a, a whole drum part that went like one, two, three, four, 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 you know, so we were just doing our music, and I was using the drums as a as a percussion section, right? As well as playing time, right? Oh yeah, there, then there's that. Uh, I mean, you you talk about just you playing heavy, but with attention to technique, with attention to orchestrating a part with some of the classical background that you picked up right. in, in school and the influences of the day. It sounds like an amalgam of many things that the, the what comes out is is what we hear in those records. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a mixture of Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, Joe Morello, and Max Roach, pretty much. Okay. Done, yeah. done heavy. Done heavy. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, that's that's what my uh, how I describe my style, where it came from. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and then you know, but because I was uh, studied, I know I knew time signatures. I know how to play a five four, you know, you know seven four or whatever it was, you know. And then later on, I got you know more into time signatures, and that's what's all over guitars. Is there's all these there's all these time signatures, uh-huh. you know. Uh, I believe uh, four miles highs in thirteen eight, code nineteen starts out in seven eight. Uh, the uh, stash is in seven eight, and uh, and two bars of seven eight, two bars of four. I mean, it's, there's a lot of tags that just you know, all over guitars, you know. Okay. So it's very progressive. Yeah. You know, that way. You know. Early on, when you were doing odd time signatures, was that something you wanted to introduce to the band? Or was that, or did the band write around? No, it just it just wrote. It just we wrote stuff, and they were in time signatures. Yeah, you know, it was just happened to be like that. You just know? At, right. After I mean, we even did in a song called Par- uh, "Faceless People." We even did a paradiddle between the bass and drums and the guitar and organ. Wow. You know, like gakum, gak gakum, gakum, you know, uh-huh. in a song. You know, it's pretty wild. You know, that was my idea, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, tell me about uh, meeting Bonham. Uh, it was uh, late uh, 1968. You guys were on tour. Yeah, we we put him on their first tour. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I I liked the album. I liked what he did with his foot, and he you know he, he sounded good. They got a great drum sound on him. And when he saw my big drum set, he flipped out. He wanted a set like that. And he told me he got that bass drum thing from me. And I didn't, I, I said, I don't do that. And he pointed out, well, I did it a couple of times on, on my Renaissance record. And he just did it repetition, you know? Which, and, do you remember which, 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 uh, no, bass drum I don't thing? remember the song. I'd have to listen to his, uh, okay. the whole album. I but I mean, the, you, you say the bass drum thing. The triplet, the triplet. Yeah. Okay. Good times, bad times. Gotcha. The triplet. Yeah, you know. So, and then he told me he got it for me, and I didn't believe him. He showed me where he got it. He did it repetition, you know, over and over. That made it his thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then I called up Ludwig and helped him get the uh, the deal. I played, sent him the record. I said, "This guy, I think it's going to be big." And it's an understatement of five decades, you know. <laughs> you know. So late in '68, they hadn't had a record out. They're no, not yet. They were on tour with y'all. We and... took them on the very first tour. Uh huh. The first first show, we actually paid half their fee on that first show. Also, wow. wow. Okay. Fifteen hundred dollars they got for the first show. Nice. Yeah. So. <laughs> and you had a crazy, big... and, then, and then we became friends, and then I got them the same drum set. Okay. Six months later, they got big, and we were doing 
gigs together and we both had the same drum set. It's pretty wild. <laughs> so he had a double bass kit like you had? Yes, and he played it. And after that kit, after that tour, Robert and Jimmy thought it was too busy and they asked him to take away the left bass drum. He did, and that became the Led Zeppelin drum set. <laughs> that's awesome, man. It's and crazy, right? And, and Ludwig forever, that's all she wrote. And who knew? I mean, nobody knew they were going to be so big. Well, Who knew that when he took the bass drum, where that that was going to become like one of the most famous drum sets in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, yeah, who knew? Yeah. That's, I mean, when I met him, he was nobody. He was green. It was nobody knew him. Right. I mean, nobody, nobody can phantom that now. They can't, they can't visualize that because it was so big. You know, I mean, he still wins all the polls, number one and all the, all the drum polls everywhere. I posted that we were gonna uh, we were gonna speak, and uh, uh, one of the listeners says, "Okay, for the record, how do you pronounce your last name?" <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, I say a, a piece now, but I used to be Apice. My brother says Apice. Yeah, and that's what confused everybody. Yeah, you know. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, it was just most people called me that. That's why I went with that. Yeah, yeah. You know? When I joined Rod Stewart. He said, we've got to get one way to say your name because it's like ridiculous already. You know, you're like five different people. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> so he said, what, what uh, is the most widely used version? I said, well, most people call me a piece and I correct them. You know? Okay. So, so he said, uh, well, let's go with that. And then I did an ad with Ludwig. It was, uh, everyone wants a piece of piece. That's that's it, you know, and it, it, and then my brother came out in 1980 for Sabbath, and he confused everybody, <laughs> you know? and that's too bad because <laughs> I had it going good. <laughs> so your parents and your grandparents—it's apathy. Yeah, well, yeah, apathy. My older brother says a peach, a peach. That's the Italian way, you know. So it's like, uh, so we always tell us, so we goof on that when me and Vinny do shows together. We do. Right. He says, if you guys come out a piece my brother on drums, I do a solo, he comes out and does that. And then right. he goes, I bet, you know, everybody wants to know why I'm Apathy and he's a piece. You guys want to know? And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, you know. And he goes up to the mic and starts talking. He said, this is the story. And then when he starts talking, I start playing loud. And you can't hear anything <laughs> he says because he's just mouthing it. Yeah, you know, yeah. not saying anything. Yeah. And when I stop, he goes, and that's the story. That's it. That's <laughs> awesome. That's great. In our remaining time, I just I just want to ask you about being an educator and um, the realistic rock drum method. The ultimate realistic rock drum method was yeah. voted among the top twenty five books of all time by Modern Drummer. Um, mm-hmm. It came out in nineteen seventy two. Um, I know it's been rewritten, uh, revised, and republished um, yeah. under the ultimate realistic rock drum method. Yeah, yeah, and I added, yeah, as as, as time went on, you know, and my drumming progressed, and drumming progressed, you know, right. it needed updates to update it into now, mm-hmm. you know, and so I always tried to stay on top of things, you know, like like uh, when, you know, when I got the double bass drum, I I. I, I tried to stay on top of the double bass drum. And then when I, I wrote the book and I, I, I had a studio, I was teaching, I came up with so many new ideas, you know, like 60 different ways to go to a rock beat, you know, mm-hmm. and you can go through the book 60 different ways, you know, and, you know, I used to teach the students that and it was pretty amazing, you know, the stuff we were doing. And we got into time signatures and then through a mistake, one of my students, I said, play seven, eight, put the hi-hat in quarter and eight notes. And he put it in quarter notes. And I noticed every other, every other bar, it would go on and off the beat on its own. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, oh, if you can do it with the hi-hat, you can do it with your right hand, your hi-hat, you, you know, change different rhythms, you know, to it. You can do it on the ends and it will flip around also, you know? Yeah. You know, so we came up with all these ideas and, you know, so I wanted to incorporate some of those things in the book. So we, and, and we, you know, I added this seven, eight, nine, eight, and I added linear section, and kind of a replacement section, you know, a combination between the hand and foot. When things were going, we, you know, I hit like four on the snare drum, the four on the bass drum, and the chinas, you know. 
Okay. And, you know, so I just, as I updated my style, I tried to update the book to keep it into, you know, somewhat now territory, which is still in somewhat now territory, I think, you know. Uh, the instrument's uh, always evolving. I mean, I imagine that. Yeah. Oh, some of the, I mean, the way some of these young kids play double bass drum now, you know, when I did Posture Farm in 1970, it was the fastest double bass drum thing that was ever recorded, you know? And now it's like a ballad compared to those guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But, but at the time, that, that's, that's how it was recorded, you know, and that's how. What they had. Matter of fact, there was a thing in Modern Drummer where they said uh, that Billy Cobham's uh, song of Billy Cobham's album was the fastest, uh, the, you know, the first double bass drum like that, you know. And then there was some uh, fans wrote in and said, no, it wasn't. It's Cactus Posture Farm, which was two years before, mm-hmm. was like that, you know. And I said, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, so, yeah, but anyway, you know, so I always try to stay above. That's one thing, you know, like, like I lo- always loved Cozy Powell, you know, Cozy was a really good player, like in 1972 and, and all that. But, you know, as time went on, I noticed he didn't evolve his playing at all, you know, where, you know, like Ian Pace evolved his playing, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, most drummers, you know, evolved somewhat. Right, right. You know, but uh, Cozy stayed in the same thing. And, you know, I loved what he did, you know, because it was very reminiscent of what I was doing at the time, you know. And uh, I used to goof on Cozy because, <laughs> uh, yeah, he played he played with Jeff Beck, you know, after Jeff was supposed to play with me and he got in a car wreck and he was vacant, you know, he's out of the business for a year and a half. And that year and a half, me and Tim did uh, Cactus, you know. And then when Jeff came out, he came out with Cozy Powell on drums, you know, because you know, according to John, uh, according to the book Thunder of Drums, Cozy and, and Bonzo used to listen to me together. And when Bonzo came back from that first tour with us, he was all excited to, you know, hang out with, with, with us. And he was, you know, him and Cozy were like, you know, going gaga the fact that he was hanging out with me, you know, it's pretty funny. That's I think of it now, it's funny, you know, pretty funny. But anyway, you know, but, you know, so I've always tried to, long story short, I just try to evolve, you know. I mean, I've evolved to a point, you know, like, I, I don't play like these young kids play today. The bass drums go like, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just yeah. don't do that. You know, I'm too old for that stuff, you know. But, but you know, I do what I do and I've been doing it. And a lot of guys that are doing it today, I hear a lot of my stuff in it. Right. Uh, and that's not egoing out. I'm just you know, being realistic, you know. Well, the, the time period and, and, and everything and, yeah. and what you have to offer. Well, let me ask you two yeah. quick questions to wrap things up for you. Okay. Um, yeah. Advice for teachers. You spending a lot of time in education and putting together this incredible book. What advice would you give for teachers that are instructing the next generation of drummers? Well, first of all, they got to love what they're doing. Because mm-hmm. it comes out, you know. If they don't love what they're doing, you know, the students are not going to come out any good. And you know, and just try and uh, not have the students wasting their time, you know. Let them know. I mean, like, be honest with them. You know, basically, like I had students. I had one time I had sixty students a week in my school. I had two other teachers with me, you know, and. You know, there were a few guys that I had to say, listen, you guys, you know, don't have the talent, you mm. know. I mean, you're reading the books and everything, but, you know, when you play drums, it's just, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, lie to you, but, you know, you're not going to become a great drummer, mm. you know. Interesting. You know, mm-hmm. you just don't have the talent for it. And some guys just... They don't play good, even with great teaching. Yeah. If you don't have the talent and the passion, you know, it's just not going to happen. So I would say just be honest with your students. You know, don't waste the money, you know, just to make your dollar, you know. Right, 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 right. Because it's, it's, there's something special about what we're, what we're all doing. Yeah, because you want, you know, yeah, you mm-hmm. want, you want something. Now obviously, you must be a drummer, right? Yes, I am. Well, okay. So, you know, so you know that, you know, if you, 
you teaching somebody, you want him to be saying, that's my student. You want him to be great. You know, I had Bobby Rondinelli and Joe Franco. Those two, they were two of my star students that came out and did great careers for themselves, you know, you know, and, but there was other ones that were good, but there's, some of them weren't very good, you know, and it's too bad. <laughs> Well, with with two sons of my own that are getting into music, I, I just want to pa- pass on the passion for music and the passion and for understanding and knowledge and history so that if they decide to do music for a living or not, that's not the point, but that it just makes their life that much better. Well, yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good that you're doing that. Like my, my, my kids, my daughter was 12 years old singing like Christina Aguilera, you know? And mm-hmm. I said, well, you know what? I got to... I can probably get you a record deal, you know, back in whatever it was in 2000, early 2000s, you know, but then uh, I did some demos with her. And she sounded great. I actually wrote a couple of songs with the guy that wrote the guitars, his songs with me, you know? Yeah. And, and then she didn't like that style of music anymore. <laughs> and she got into punk. She's playing bass. You know, going blah 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 blah. You know, right. Just playing bass and 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 singing yeah. punk music, and it was horrible. You know, yeah. so so that was the end of that. <laughs> then she got into special effects makeup, which is another creative part sure. of the sure. entertainment business. And that's what she does for a living. She loves it. There you go. But she got it. You gotta love it, Cause especially her, because the business she's in is like being a musician. Because you don't know when the next gig is. Right. Even though she's in the union now, she's done okay. She's done, doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. But versus my son now is a, is a, a CT a CT radiology tech. Okay. Know? Now he can play. I don't know where he learned, but he can play. Me and Vinny were rehearsing. <laughs> drum wars. Yeah. And he and he, we went downstairs to get something to drink. All of a sudden, somebody's was playing the drums. You know, going like boom, do, I said to Vinny, did somebody come in? Who the hell's playing? We go upstairs, there's my son playing. How old was he? At the time, no, it's just like, because he's 27. He was probably 18, 17, 18. Nice. I said, yeah, he's probably maybe 19. I said, where did you learn that? He goes, I play in the car. He plays like event sevenfold. He plays on the floor, his feet, his left foot, and his right hand on the steering wheels. But the good thing about it was he had the wrist action that was just right and hitting the drum, getting a sound out of it was right. Some guys don't even know how to hit a drum. Yeah, That's cool. But, but, he, but he doesn't have the passion to practice. You got to have it. You got to have he, it. He didn't want to practice. I, I mean... I, I, we we gave him some lessons. We wrote down some exercises. I wrote a drum set home. I gave him a drum pad, the drum pad that I actually used when I was a kid, you know, and uh, left a pair of sticks there. And, you know, I was living in L.A. and New York. I, I, you know, I came back a month later. The sticks were in, in the same place. Everything was there in the same place, all full of dust. Drums had dust. <laughs> you know? I mean, obviously, he didn't have the passion. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, he needs that passion. You know, that's part of the things that I talk about in my speaking gig is the focus and the passion, you know, because you have to have the focus also to practice. You know how boring practicing is, you know? Yeah. Especially if you, if you don't, if you don't have the passion to do it, forget it, you know? It's never boring for me, but that's the thing you have to translate to students that maybe don't yeah. share your passion, maybe not quite exactly. yet. Maybe they exactly. will eventually once they reach a level of uh, well, like, success. Well, take Bobby Rondinelli, for instance, right? Bobby was, was, when he was 17, taking lessons from me. And at one point, I told his mother, and his mother used to come every, every uh, day with him you know, and drop him off. Mm-hmm. I said, look, if he don't practice, you might as well stay home with him because I don't want him here. It's <laughs> <laughs> good advice. Okay. And now he does nothing but practice all the time. Yeah. Now. Yeah. You know, in his fifties, he might be sixty now. Even, you know. Well, once so, you once you get addicted to it, and you see you see progress, you get addicted to progress. Yeah, yeah I mean, like me right now, I'm I'm not playing a lot this month. So I took out the stick control book and the pad, and I've been you know going through some of that stuff again. Which I haven't gone through in ages. And I'm really rusty at it. 
Well, it's it's good to revisit a lot of those. Well, hey, listen, this this ties into my yes, very sir. last question for you, Carmine. Okay. What, what continues to inspire you at this place in your life? Well, you mean musically or, or in general? It's an open-ended question, man. If it's if well, it's I mean, meaning. you know, like I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing music. I'm having a great time in my life now. I'm yeah. doing music. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on all the pensions. You know? <laughs> I'm doing music. Uh, I got royalties coming in. I do real estate on the side, which I always loved as well. You know, and uh, I'm with my girlfriend, and we, you know, we travel, and we, you know, I'm just having a good life. So that's, that's awesome. all. All of it's inspiring. Yeah. You know. All this, I mean, I don't go on these big three, four month tours anymore, you know, because the only way to go on those tours is if you're playing with like a Rod Stewart or somebody like that. Yeah. Where you're, everything's first class, you know? Right. right. Yeah. I mean, you're flying on your own planes and you leave it when you guys want to leave and you're staying in good hotels and, you know, you got doctors on the road with you and masseuses. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's that's the way to travel. That's why a lot of these guys that are in big groups when they're saying, you know, uh, the road is so rough. I go, dude, you haven't felt the road till you're on the road to where we're on the road. Oh, tell you me know? about it. Yeah. You yeah. know, driving, uh, play a gig in in uh, Milwaukee, and then you got to do the next day in uh, St. Louis, but you're in a van. You're in a minivan. You're not in a, a bus. Because you're only out for four days, it doesn't pay, you yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of thing, and you know, it's, you know, you know so that's why I, I don't have any empathy for these, all these guys in huge bands that complain about that the road is too hard for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so dude, at my age, try to road where I am. You know. <laughs> Anything so. that you're doing special to take care of yourself? Well, I just try and go to the gym every other day, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I, I don't eat a lot of meat. I never smoked. I never really drank, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, I smoked a little pot in my day. That's about it. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, I've always tried to be healthy, you know. And uh, I never got into the heavy drugs. I never did any heroin or, you know, I never did any of that. Mm-hmm. Cocaine. I never did cocaine either. Mm. And awesome. I noticed a lot of my friends that did a lot of that stuff, they're all dying young. Wow. Okay. Well, you that's know? that's... It's good stuff to know. There's not a lot of uh, musicians, young musicians I know that are doing heavy drugs anymore. You know, it seems like that's, you know, if anything, they're drinking more than anything. Yeah, you're right. And then we lost, you know, look, we lost uh, Vinnie Paul this last year. Right. You know? mm-hmm. It's amazing. I'm looking at the, uh, the, the Grammy. They didn't even give him a mention. People have died. <clears throat> How about that? Uh, that, Terrible. I don't even pay attention to it. It's podcast you know, for me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Long, yeah, I know. You're 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 Jill podcast, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, hey, it, it, so Carmine, like, how many how many people listen to your podcast? How do, how does that even work? Well, we're on iTunes. You know, I do the plug every every week. We're on iTunes. We're on uh, Google Play. Uh, we're on YouTube now. We're we're repopulating our uh, YouTube channel. You can go to our website, uh, workingdrummer.net, and this will be episode two hundred and seven. Oh my god! Um, and we've been doing it for about three and a half years. I have a is it two hundred and seven episodes? Yeah. Yeah. Now I share Man. I share the the duties with uh, my my buddy Zach Albetta, who's a wonderful interviewer. And um, I mean, we've had so many different players on here, and Zach's a, a wonderful drummer. Uh, and so we're both full time musicians, and this is what we do to just kind of help build community. And um, having having you as a guest is an is another one of those things that helps just kind of us all grow together um and yeah, I, I feel more good. i feel more connected and i hope the listeners feel more connected i mean it's just been a wonderful thing for zach and i to do and and my oh yeah. and i and i gotta say this one last thing so when i first started my best friend mike jackson helped me get started built the website did all the technical stuff he still helps us out from time to time we grew up playing drums together in high school and his his first drum set was a red Tama Imperial Star that you used for a drum clinic in Columbus, Ohio, at a small music store. Right. And his 
older brother went in and bought it the day after wow. you used it. Wow. And uh, I told him that I was getting ready to interview you, and he goes, you know, that's my first drum set was the kit that Carmine played. And I'm like, that's right. And I still have some of the hardware, and I think maybe a snare drum floating around my house. Um, He doesn't play drums much anymore, or all his stuff's over here at my house. He just comes over and jams, but... Right. That, that, right. That's, that's funny. Just, that's yeah, it's amazing. Sometimes I get a lot of this stuff. Like I, I meet somebody. I go, yeah, I got your drum set. I go, what drum set? He goes, the blonde drum set you play with Rod Stewart. I said, no, you don't have that drum set because I, I know where that drum set is. <laughs> so well, yeah, I got that drum set. And he showed me a picture of it. I said, no, what you probably got is a clinic drum set that I must have played at a clinic. Yeah. Because when you know, in the days of the Rod Stewart days. I was like one of the big guys at Ludwig, and whenever I did a clinic, they would have my drum set mm-hmm. at the clinic with my name on it. Yeah. You know, on the name on the drum head, because that's what I had. Right, right. You know? Right. And uh, I said, I'm sorry, dude, but that's not the drum set. But I probably played it at a clinic, so it wasn't like a strange drum set. No. You know, but it probably was my the drum set for the clinic that night. Yeah, it was. It was, yeah. it was awesome, yeah. man. I try not to make the guy feel too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carmine, it is—it has been an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Um, have a great rest of your evening and all your interviews. You too. And uh, okay, man. Hope to Thank see you. you. All right, thanks, man. Bye bye. So there you have it, Carmine. A piece or apathy, depending on who you are. Uh, that was fun. That was really cool uh, to speak with him. To think about all the information and all the times that we've heard about him, read about him, used his books, heard his playing, and uh, how he's been a part of the drumming community for so many decades. So uh, I hope you all enjoyed that interview. It was a super blast for me. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albeda's interview. Keep in touch with us. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the good things. And we appreciate your input and all your listening. And I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.